You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hello, Annie here. Good to be with you on Solidarity Breakfast, live and on podcast on your community radio station, 3CR. We are going to start with Liz Ross. Liz is well known for her book, Dare to Struggle, A History of the Fighting Union, the Builders' Labourers' Federation, the BLF. Today, we talk to Liz about her new book, Stuff the Accord, Pay Up, published by independent publisher Interventions. Over the Wall is back today talking about non-residents and how they're facing the crisis during pandemic Australia. Also back is Kevin Healy, thank goodness. His ill health was just a common old ordinary lurgy, but of course we are all hypervigilant at the moment. Kevin is well enough to put the boot in as he covers the week. We are going to go out with excerpts from a, a chat between United Nations Chief Economist and Assistant Secretary General of Economic Development, Elliot Harris, in conversation with the Australian Institute's Richie Mezian. Part of a webinar series that the Australian Institute is putting on during the pandemic. What Mr Harris says about how countries need to think about the future economy, given the known threats of climate change, is fascinating. Given the federal liberal national government's love affair with big business in the gas industry, including fracking. But first, a little message from our station. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. When Liz Humphreys spoke at a Labor History conference about five years ago, her no-holds-barred critique of the union movement and Labor government's role in ushering the neoliberal agenda of privatisations, job losses, wage suppression, EBAs and individual contracts through the introduction of the Accord in the 1980s to Australia sent ripples through the audience and a wave of clearly suppressed anger at the lived result of the Accord politics from the audience. Liz Ross's book, her new book, 
Stuff the Accord, Pay Up, takes inspiration from Liz Humphrey's work, providing a well-researched breakdown of the negative results for workers of the Accord and case studies of major industrial conflicts showing the role of the major players during this period. These disputes bring us to where we are today for workers needing to rebuild their strength against a rampant business class. I spoke to Liz about her book. Let's start off with the um, contention that uh, the um, accord was ultimately a con. I mean, uh, obviously people like Laurie Carmichael were seduced by the concept of the transition to socialism. But ultimately when the accord came in, all the things that were supposed to happen as in a promise of industrial peace with improved standards of living, just didn't eventuate, did it, for workers? Well, no, exactly. And and right from the very beginning, um, there was a pullback from all of the promises uh, that were that were made. And there was, while while there were the occasional sort of efforts, like with say with Section forty five D and E, there was an attempt to take it out of the Industrial Relations Act or, you know, what the Industrial Relations Act was called then. Um, but that was it. There was one attempt and there was no real effort to, to change it. And anyway, Ralph Willis had said that the only reason that they would take any of the anti-work laws off the books was if they had something suitable to replace it. So, you know, that it was that kind of um, level of promise where you promise on the one hand and you take back with the other hand. And there's a there's a real um, the various disputes that you uh, go through in your book are quite fascinating because they introduce various elements that have become quite uh, uh, almost evil tools against workers uh, to gain uh, increased wages or and conditions. The uh, in in what's become, as you call, the Australia's new corporate state, where there's a collaboration going on between the federal government, the ACTU and the business class, and that the accord was used as a weapon against workers. Oh, absolutely. And, it, you know, in, in a sense, it's, it's a weapon, a weapon that's really about restoring the profits for the employing class. So it's, it's a, it appears in a range of different, different ways, whether it's, whether it's your wages, whether it's your conditions, whether it's the number of people employed, uh, whether it's the social wage, because as time went on, of course, the employers were less and less keen that any of the money that, that was collected by the government um, would go to them in terms of industry plans or industry assistance rather than assistance to the working class. So, um, in, and then, of course, in terms of industrial relations, what they wanted to make sure was that workers didn't, ha- didn't have the organisation uh, to be able to fight back. So you had a range of... Um, of situations where the whole process of 
bargaining for wages and conditions changed uh, till it got to the situation that we're in today with the enterprise bargaining, where it's quite clear that enterprise bargaining was, was absolutely about weakening the workers' side and strengthening the bosses' side, uh, you know, by by dividing people up and also helping in helping to create a whole uh, uh, working class consciousness that was about about sort of thinking that you're in it on your own, that that nobody else can help you, and the whole concept of of solidarity between workers was destroyed step by step quite deliberately by the by both the government and the and the ACTU and the union leaderships that, that did support the accord. Yeah, so it's it's quite interesting because uh, the second tier uh, element of the accord, uh, where you had to trade off um, conditions for poultry wage increases made wage, uh, the dynamic changed where people were constantly trying to get um, standard of living uh, wage increases pitted against things like annual leave, long service leave, standard hours of work and ordinary time earnings uh, were so that basically everything to do with a working class person's life was destabilised. Absolutely. I mean, I remember the second tier incredibly well because one of the things that it also that it did was it reintroduced the idea, which had been around, you know, many years before, many decades before that, but it reintroduced the idea of trade-off for your wage wage increase. Before that, it had basically been, um, you know, you deserved a, a wage rise because the cost of living had gone up or, ju- you know, just because the boss was making more profit and therefore, you know, you should have a share of it because you were the ones who actually contributed to that profit. So as the second tier it was an absolute disaster for workers. Not only did people have to trade off the stuff that they had and most most of the lower paid workers had hardly anything to trade off and I remember one one big um, delegates meeting that was held in Trades Hall where Simon Crean who was the head of the ACTU I think he was the secretary um, of the ACTU at the time said oh we've traded off morning tea biscuits um, we won't get morning tea biscuits anymore. We'll have to bring our own. And that brought absolute uproar into the meeting because a lot of workers didn't even get morning tea, let alone being able to trade off biscuits, I mean, which was an absolutely pathetic little trade-off um, that the ACTU was trying to portray as being something important that was relevant to most workers. And so I, I think it was at least um, two or three years later only about 20% of, of workers had actually their second-tier wage rise. So it was the, one of the biggest rip-offs of the Accord years, Yeah, the, the second-tier thing. It it's all sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? Because, in fact, uh, I, in fact it, what, that particular story brings into uh, uh, um, focus that uh, compelling piece in your book uh, about Robe uh, River where you've got... 
workers who have been uh, in the dust and the heat uh, uh, coming up uh, after long hours, lining up um, in almost prison greens for a plastic cup of uh, water and um, a couple of saltine biscuits for refreshment. Mm. Uh, and these were the conditions that they were living with. Uh, That's right, yes. Yeah, it's it's pretty grim. Yeah, pretty outrageous. And um, the boss, of course, was sitting in, in um, pristine, clean clothes in air-conditioned comfort. And they, you know, having, having you know, fancy biscuits and, and, you know, cups of tea and everything like that. So this was the kind of thing that the um, the employers portrayed as being somehow that the workers were were greedy or that they got special you know special privileges or something just because they they could even get uh, that sort of break and that they were the kinds of things that as well that the employers were desperate to to implement not because it was you know it didn't cost them very much it wouldn't have cost them anything to really to put on a decent morning tea but it was more the fact that they wanted to and this was the whole process of the accord as well they wanted to stamp the employer's authority to do whatever they wanted to do to take away any agency on the part of workers to have any control over their working lives and conditions um, and so, you know, it was, it was sometimes small incidents like that. Well, they weren't so small if you're coming in out of the heat and dust, but small incidents like that, where the, which the employers grabbed and ran with to be able to enforce, you know, to, again, break down workers' self-confidence, break down their, their sense of, of the right that they should have at work. You argue that uh, the uh, Hawke government was uh, quite clear when they they understood exactly what they were aiming to do and that they were selling the uh, uh, workers a pup when they introduced the accord and got the ACTU to agree to the uh, overarching process of, uh, of the accord. It was actually about restructuring everything but uh, that increased profits but uh, that standard of living wasn't going to increase for the uh, workers all be maintained and that you you argue that they actually knew this well yes um the the accord came about actually on from the left wing of the trade union movement who'd given up on any any real struggle and were looking for ways to save capitalism and so they had looked at what was happening in other countries in Europe uh, where they had what they called the social contract. And the social contract was so despised in Britain uh, where they had it that they threw it out, that the workers you know, rose up and threw it out uh, and the government that tried to implement it. But in Australia, it had very much of a left cover but when people spoke about it, when Keating spoke about it, when Hawke spoke about it, when Bill Kelty spoke about it, they were very clear about um, the fact that 
they ha- they put in place various measures, as Hawke said, uh, things that we did that in the recession so that when the upturn came, uh, the, all of the strictures were in place. Keating said we used um, various forms of wage um, development uh, until we got to the point where the profit share was returned and we had no need of some of the other measures that they'd used. And Kelty himself said things like, well, um, this is on the 30th anniversary, and he was quite blatant about it. Um, he said, well, we couldn't go to the workers telling them that we were arguing for a wage cut. Um, we We knew we had to um, restore capitalism, and we knew we had to, um, you know, in, ensure that there were wage concessions, and we were prepared to accept that. So, all the way through, they knew they were lying to workers. They knew what their their real goals were, like you said. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was it was a life from beginning to end, really, in terms of what workers got. There were fancy plans about industries, you know, waterfront, steel, whatever, and all that workers got out of that was massive job cuts and cuts in wage conditions. I think the on the waterfront it went down from something like thirty thousand to three thousand. I mean huge cuts you're talking about. And that was with the collaboration of the union leadership. They knew that the job cuts were coming. And also the w- drug cuts, when you say job cuts and you think uh, on one hand, you know, you're going to rationalise things, perhaps uh, there is some uh, fat, all that sort of stuff. But ultimately as it's po- pointed out with about the uh, public sector unions, when they removed people, they just increased people's workload and uh, and reduced their wages. That's right. Well, neoliberalism really was about that, and that's what the accord introduced. And it meant basically neoliberalism says that that they don't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't allow for any faults in the system. And it also encourages a massive uh, automation of things so that in the public sector there were they they introduced um, a massive amount of um, of computerization and that did and it covers up a certain amount of of problems in the system um, but in the end, when something goes wrong then there aren't enough people who have either enough history to know what needs to be done or what can be done, uh, but also not enough people to actually deal with the problems. So, so the the idea that there's fat to to be cut from an organisation is a neoliberal myth. Um, and but in the end, it's it's workers who pay. They pay two ways. One, as you said, the wages and conditions, but two, they pay in terms of the services provided. So all the welfare services that were provided, all the, you know, the power and all of that sort of stuff, what we've got now are absolutely second-rate services that are scraping past, you know, on the smell of an oily rag. And with a whole lot of workers totally stressed out of their mind, um, underpaid, overworked and, uh, you know, no future. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855am and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and at the moment we're talking to Liz Ross about her new book, Stuff the Accord, Pay Up. You can get a copy from the publisher's Interventions online. 
actually the issue of the landscape of uh, class struggle is deeply uh, affected by this uh, section of Australian working history. Uh, you've got a Labor government, and it's the Finn Review quote, which is so fascinating. Uh, the Hawke government has become a jailer for unions, which dared to buck the Accords consensus, and the ACTU has become an industrial police force. Uh, and the uh, Hawke government, it was the Labor government that uh, privatised the Commonwealth Bank, Telstra, Qantas, CES... And diverse uh, and defence service ha homes. The, this is very important in relation to uh, breaking down the uh, sense of uh, who workers have to support them. That's right. Yes. Yeah. People thought, okay, this is a government that's going to be on our side after the Fraser years, because Fraser was quite clearly a class warrior who who was opposed to anything that workers wanted but people thought well not everybody but a number of people thought well there's Bob Hawke who's been head of the ACTU he's on the workers side you've got the ACTU that's meant to be on the workers side um, and in fact that was not it was never the case it had never been the case the Hawke was always a sellout in the ACTU and the Labor Party has a long history of selling out workers so um, you know, it, there was there was never going to be anything from that that group of people, and they certainly were policing the working class because what you had was you had the forces of the state brought in against the Builders Labourers Federation. There were police on job sites, all of that sort of stuff. You had and you had both the state and federal government cracking down on the union, sending in special um, special operations police to raid the union, to sequester their funds, to do all sorts of, you know, administer the whole union. Nothing could be done by the union themselves without this administrator in the end. Um, then you had the Air Force brought in against the pilots with the express... Um, okay of Bill Kelty. He, was, he wasn't at the meeting that decided it, but he was on the telephone um, at, in the meeting which, de which decided to, to bring in the Air Force against the, um, against the pilots. And the irony of these, actually, the one, one good thing that Bob Hawke had ever done in his life was under Fraser. Fraser was going to bring in the Air Force under, against the pilots when he was fighting with them, and Bob Hawke, as head of the ACTU, persuaded Malcolm Fraser not to do that. But, um, you know, so there the irony was that he was... And he made it quite clear in Cabinet. He went into Cabinet one day um, against the BLF and says, we're going to get these bastards. And then he told the pilots that if you come up against us, it's war. So, you know, you had all of that... All of that coming from both the government and the ACTU, the ACTU and the union leadership. It wasn't just the ACTU, but the union leaderships who supported the accord, they, were, they um, attacked unions who, who took a stand, like the Food Preservers Union. Um, 
about, you know, we were, when I was in the public sector, we were told by the ACTU and the, um, and the government that we were destroying the accord, that we were bringing the, you know, bringing the economy into crisis, all sorts of things, just because we wanted a wage rise, you know. So enormous policing from both the government and the ACTU. You uh, argue in your books that, uh, and you show in your uh, examples that uh, in the nurses' dispute in particular and uh, in the um, public service wages dispute that uh, activists who pushed the envelope and refused to kowtow to their union officials ultimately were the only ones who actually made breakthroughs. That's right, yes, yeah. Uh, I both the, you know, in, with the food preservers, for example, Dennis Evans, who was one of the organisers there, said basically we didn't have the right to tell our members whether they whether they could afford to live on their wages. If they told us they they couldn't afford to to um, live on the wages, well then we had to back them 100%, and they did, and they got the backing of the Builders Labor Federation and a whole lot of other unions. The the Transport Workers Union refused to cross their their picket lines. Uh, all of that sort of stuff went on. So. So for those unions that were prepared to take a stand and were prepared to really fight, uh, in the end they they won. Not everybody did though. The plumbers tried and in the end got fined. Oh, I, I four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, several hundred thousand dollars worth of fines. Uh, I, I, you know, so that happened. But then with the nurses, Irene Bolger, who was a new sort of activist leader of the nurses at the time um, really did listen to to the members they had they also had a rank and file committee that was a strike committee they had regular bulletins on three on you know on this station 3CR um, that was every day they put out regular newsletters they had a whole lot of events and again they got by the by the rest of the union movement I know in my workplace, we collected. I collected money for them, and nobody refused to give money for the nurses. But it was because they were really hanging in there. Um, they had picket lines. They, you know, in the end, they had to ask people not to toot because the noise was going into the hospitals and disturbing the patients. But they had massive support, and they had, they were up against the government and the ACTU that wanted them to do. You know, that wanted them to back down. And the state government in particular played an appalling role in terms of, of what they were demanding of the nurses. But the nurses really were, they, they did everything that you needed to do to fight back, you know, to get, get the actual members involved, to get them fighting, to, um, to get them um, taking a stand. And, you know, they won. And it, it would have been the best example for other unions to follow on, but the ACTU um, and, you know, other union officials made sure that this was not spread, that this this way of organising was not spread. Because at the same time, you know, as, this, as the nurses' strike was going on, the union officials, you know, left-wing union officials, the ACTU and the governments were also smashing the BLF. 
So it was going on at the same same time. Uh, interesting with the nurses too, there were two standout things. One, they were paid so appallingly and so disrespected, uh, which may, it was very compelling. But also uh, the ACTU played a very uh, Machiavellian role in even in the final stages. It took a lot of courage. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, the ACTU um, insisted on being the negotiator for for the final stages of the of the um, the deal that was done, which was a good deal. Um, but they went into the negotiations arguing something different when when they'd been told by the Nurses Federation that you know exactly what they had to argue. So Irene had to call out. Um, the ACTU representative, her name's escaped me for the moment. Yeah, I've forgotten the, the name for the moment because Irene was far more important than this this particular person. Um, anyway, Irene had to put her out of the the thing and of uh, the meeting and tell her, no, you cannot offer that up because what the deal is is this one, two, three, four, and if you don't argue for that they're out of the whole thing and so she forced the the ACTU to go back in and argue what the nurses actually wanted not some compromise they wanted they wanted all the things that they had demanded and so they ended up they ended up getting getting exactly what they had had demanded and um you know, there was took... these weasel words about not understanding the difference between substantive um, outcomes and um, real outcomes. That that's right. Yeah, I mean it was all. Yeah, it, it was all pretty outrageous. Well. Yeah, they they were they were called. Um, you know, they they had patronising attitudes from both the government and the ACTU. They were told they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know. You know, they didn't understand. You know, real politic and all that kind of stuff and 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 Irene just came back and said we knew exactly what was going on we knew exactly how we were being ripped off in all of the deals um, that were being proposed and um, we just told them no you know we know what's happening you're going to give us what we want and not and not some sellout deal Um, the nurses were magnificent they were uh, their story keeps getting told almost every year, and for very good reason, is that they they were absolutely awe-inspiring. The use of um, secondary boycott legislation and um, the uh, common law courts to mm-hmm. uh, um, torts to bring uh, unions and their workers down, that's now a common feature in our industrial landscape which comes from this period doesn't it oh absolutely yes that was a um the section 45d and 45e that i mentioned fraser they were in the trade practices act and fraser turned them into weapons against the uh against the unions in the industrial relations provisions and so you know what they were meant to do was to stop people um Yes, it was all about um, trade and property. It had nothing to do with workers at all, but it was transferred into this weapon against the workforce. As I said, the Hawke government tried, made one pathetic effort to get it overturned in Parliament, uh, but they encouraged, they actually encouraged the use of these against against um, workers. Uh, 
and 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 when when the employers actually used them, the the Labor government and the ACTU did nothing to try and try and fight that. The other thing with the common law that came in, in very early in the piece in a, a dispute over a very small factory called Dollar Sweep, and it was run by a guy. It was a place that made um, you know the very famous hundreds and thousands. Um, confectionery that people have on fairy bread and all that kind of stuff. Kids have it. Uh, and there was a lot of emotional rubbish going on during that dispute about, you know, how kids were being deprived of their hundreds and thousands. Um, but Hawke actually wrote to the employer saying, you know, stand firm, don't, um, you know, don't give in to the workers. Who were All they were doing was getting, trying to get what the rest of the of their industry, the you know confectionery industry, had already got, which was a 36-hour week, and the employer was refusing to give it to them. Now he was also portrayed as being some poor, you know, unconnected, you know, small business person. It was nothing of the sort. He had friends in very high places, and he used them. And this was the dispute, Dollar Sweets, where. Peter Costello came in as you know in his first sort of um, outing as a as a anti worker, um, both pol- you know uh, lawyer and you know eventually politician, and he was the one who said, okay, let's look at the laws. We can use common law against these workers, and they did. Um, and again, this was something that the Hawke government and the ACTU uh, did everything in their power to allow to happen um, and to make sure that the workers got sold. Yeah, because in order to run a common law case, you have to have deep pockets. And in many of these disputes yes. that you're talking about, uh, forces were arrayed against particular working groups uh, in a very That's strategic, right. chess-like manner, in a way yes. of that were going to resound through the uh, uh, industrial landscape uh, to this present day, correct? That's right. Yes. Well, Fred, Sta- Fred Stouter, who who owned um, the company um, Dollar Sweets, he he was in um, the same organisations as people like Hugh Morgan, who was a very rich mining magnate. Uh, back in the day, and who was a very, very much a class warrior as well, and prepared to pull together people who were who would back um, back people like Fred Stouter in their attempt to to smash workers. And and you yes, you you have the same going through going through the Accord years and right through till now, where you know, along with the the secondary boycott provisions, um, make it make it almost impossible for, and all the other changes, you know, the so-called changes to the so-called Fair Work Act, make it almost impossible for any worker to take any action whatsoever. And the only solution at the moment to to that situation is it's going to have to be smashed through like with Clary O'Shea. There is no point pussyfooting around any of this. There's no point having little token strikes or anything like that. You have to go in 
health a lever against these laws because it's the only way by having some sort of united working class fight back that you're actually going to change them. But the, certainly the the beginnings of the the vicious use of these laws um, started with the Accord years and was encouraged by the Accord partners. And also, it wasn't uh, a um, these aren't single events. This is a strategy. And uh, it's interesting that uh, in your book that uh, the um, uh, various case studies that you use give some uh, enlightenment to potential activists' activities for the future. Oh, I think so, yes. Um, the, the ones that won, like, uh, like the food preservers at um, Rosella, Lipton and Hines and Plumrose, who who did it by the book in terms of how you how you fight for your rights. You know they had the picket lines, they had they stood firm, they didn't give in, um, or the nurses that kind of stuff where you had the on on the ground rank and file organising. That's the kind of thing that you need um, to be able to win these days. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to, to be able to show to people what what it is that you can do. Sure, there were defeats, but it's be, you know in the long run it's better to um, you know stand up and struggle than just give in because you've got that legacy. One of the things I hope from the book is that there really is a legacy of to know that we have a history of workers not accepting all the, the restrictions, not accepting the, the, you know, the threats and everything like that, but saying we've got rights, we're going to stand up for those rights and we're going to fight, you know, win or lose, we're going to, we're actually going to, to well, dare to win as the, as the um, BLF slogan goes. So, you know, if, because if you don't struggle, you definitely won't win. Oh, if also, you do struggle, struggle, you've got a chance of winning. Yeah, yeah. The basic unfairness of a whole range of these things that were being heaped on workers is mm, uh, is mm. the thing. And 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 finally, I'll have to say, the uh, uncovering of the fact that so uh, that the Industrial Relations Commission, as well as Kelty, in fact, refused uh, to accept the concept of comparative wage justice and the lingering, uh, outrageous uh, uh, disparity between uh, the wages of women and uh, the... Uh, is just... It made me angry, actually, to see how it's entrenched in our system that women should have unequal outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's never been real... Well, no, I won't... There's never been there. There has been lukewarm support for the concept of equal pay um, from a number of forces within the union movement. One of the best things that ever happened with equal pay was when the AMWU, the Manufacturing Workers Union, in 1969, enforced the Arbitration Commission um, uh, rec or not recommend ruling that uh, for equal pay. Men and women in the manufacturing sector uh, actually fought together for equal pay. That it was won there. It it was won in the um, in the federal public sector as well without without a fight. Um, 
although pe- you know people had been agitating for it, but they didn't actually have to fight for it. But the the Industrial Relations Commission or Fair Workers, it's called now, has never been on workers' side. The only way, and, and Norm Gallagher said this a long time ago, and and many many others have repeated it, is that you win on the ground before you go into the Arbitration Commission effectively to make sure that they rubber stamp what you've won. Um, there's no point going in and expecting the Arbitration Commission, which really is a boss's court, there's no point going in expecting them to deal fairly with it. And the ACTU did nothing really to make um, equal pay either a priority for the union movement or allow people to actually fight for it. They they knew in the cases that they chose the um, comparative work case, they knew it wouldn't be accept, accepted. I'm sure of that. Um, you know, I don't have the evidence, but I, I I'm sure that they knew that it would not be accepted and they, they expected that women would just accept that they'd tried and um, that they hadn't won, you know. And I think that was one of the things that should have really flowed through from the nurses' dispute because the nurses were used as a, as a test case, uh, not that they wanted to be, but um, they were used as a test case. Um, and... It was allowed to wither on the vine, really, because the the ACT wouldn't let other unions pick up the the ball and run with it, um, and really fight for equal pay, because there is, you know, there's a there's a lot of support for equal pay out there, and it's not in the interest of any any worker that there isn't equal pay, because it's used as a as a low base from which to pay everybody else. Oh, it's just unjust. Uh, also, mm. I suppose uh, we should uh, finish off with uh, Corey O'Shea's assessment that all, bas- all bosses are bastards and that, it, <laughs> and, uh, that uh, it belies the working class not to forget that there is a class war. That's right. Yes, I actually heard him say that at a rally that he attended for the BLF in in um, Melbourne in the in the CBD, and he got up on the truck and actually said, "Yeah, all bosses are bastards." But uh, he also had the message, you know, that you have to break the law um, to be able to win. You you have to keep up the fight. You have to to um, organise um, and one of the groups that have tried to do that more recently are uh, some workers in uh, in the National Tertiary Education Union over the the appalling situation there with the attacks on jobs, wages, conditions um, and the massive underpayment that's gone on on the campuses and casualisation. So there are people out there still fighting and I hope that you know they do take courage from the examples that I've given in the book and from our from our really fabulous working class history um, in Australia that you can fight and you can win. Thanks, Liz. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR 8:55 a.m. Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Let's begin with the crisis that's happening for non-residents who are living in Australia during the COVID pandemic. Students and people who have been temporary workers are not eligible to access social safety net. 
they can't get job seeker payments, for example, via Centrelink. I've been talking to one person to gain a first-hand account of what it's like to be in Australia at the moment as a non-resident during the COVID pandemic. For sake of privacy, I will call this person Rose. The Australian Tax Office website says when it comes to COVID superannuation access, temporary residents are not eligible to apply for this in the 2020-21 financial year. The ATO states only eligible citizens and permanent residents of Australia or New Zealand can apply for a second $10,000 super payment in the 2020-21 year. Okay, let's pause and consider the implications of this. Eligible citizens and permanent residents can also apply for JobKeeper and JobSeeker if they lose their jobs, but temporary residents cannot. To say the obvious, this means that temporary residents have no access to the social safety net and they are also denied the same rights to access a second payment from their own super. So what do these temporary residents do when their money is run out? Rose has sold all her valuable possessions to pawn shops for very little money. She's a single mum with a 14-year-old daughter. Rose lost her job in March. She's behind in the school fees for her daughter at a low fee paying school. They are South African background and her daughter is one of only two black students at their school. She's already had to endure racism and its taunts. Now she's experiencing in the past week for the first time a lunchbox that only contains white rice and salt and oil. They eat that for breakfast too. The school has been patient so far on the late fees. Many days Rose goes in person to employment agencies to inquire about work and cleaning and disability, the two areas she has lots of experience in. She goes in person because nobody responds to her electronic applications for work. Lately, Rose doesn't have money to travel to these agencies anymore. The first super payment last financial year that Rose was eligible for, nearly half of it went by Rose to pay her rent in advance. Rose grew up in a poor suburb of Cape Town. She said she has an instinct to detect when hard times are ahead and paid all the money she could to keep their roof. Very sadly, Rose also experienced domestic violence in her marriage and her husband left her while they were in Australia and repartnered six years ago. He stopped paying child support in the past few months. Her ex-partner currently says he isn't getting enough work to pay child support and his tax return is in process. Now, in 2020 in Australia during COVID, Rose has found her one hope of getting a job is as a fly-in, fly-out worker doing cleaning of bathrooms, rooms and communal areas in the mines. She has reached the stage of getting asked to do a medical examination by an employment agency that organises these jobs. Rose asked recently her ex-husband if he would care for their child while she was away for three weeks at a time and he refused. Rose is currently asking friends for the same support but with no luck. Rose has no money left. She received one six-hour shift in the past three weeks as a personal care attendant in aged care through an agency. The latest development for Rose is that she said, quote, 
For the first time ever since I've been in Australia, the employment agencies have started asking me one question right at the start of an assessment prior to an interview. They ask me, are you a citizen or non-citizen? When she answers non-citizen, that is the end. They won't any longer consider her for the same jobs they chased her to do prior to the COVID pandemic. What this means for temporary residents like Rose is that employment agencies have started discriminating against temporary residents preferring citizens. That is a story that needs to be investigated. For where does the mandate to do that come from, if not from government possibly, or very likely? People most vulnerable in Australia, temporary residents with no access to a social safety net, are now facing policies by employment agencies that also prevent them from getting work. What choices does Rose face now? She hasn't money recently to afford public transport. How could she afford a plane ticket to anywhere else? And we have all heard listeners in the news since COVID that non-residents have been unable to return to their country due to travel restrictions. Rose doesn't want welfare payments. She's worked two to three jobs all her life. She saved well and lost everything in a violent marriage. Rose also has one dream, for her daughter to finish her education where she is also excelling in sports and study. I've lost contact a bit with Rose lately. So have the other people who know her. She said she can't stand any more the questions about is she looking for work or is she looking in the right places or has she tried this? Rose has tried everything only to reach an end point of being told you're not going to be considered by an employment agency because you're not a citizen. There are too many Roses currently in Australia in desperate poverty to justify this nation being considered a humanitarian and caring place. Back to the point made at the start of this story. Why can't temporary residents at least have access to a second $10,000 withdrawal from their own super in the 2020-21 financial year? This is disgusting in my opinion, that they can't access it and others can. They are the people in the most desperate situation of any person in this country who's lost their job. As of the end of March 2020, figures on Australian Parliament website state there are 2,172,648 people in Australia who are non-residents of varying categories. Listeners, Rose's story is just one story of these millions of the people in Australia who are extremely vulnerable to recession and lost jobs and no access to the safety net. Australia welcomed these people. Australia closed its borders. Australia now raises no significant policy to help these extremely vulnerable human beings. Just like they're not supporting the arts, this isn't a policy priority in any way for our government. The Australian Council of Trade Unions is urging the federal government to consider protection for workers on temporary visas. Writers Hall and Thompson published an article in the Sydney Morning Herald in May this year titled Plea for 0.1 million of temporary visas as experts warn of public health disaster. Quote, More than 180 community groups have united in the call for federal financial support for 1.1 million temporary visa holders, including migrant workers, international students and asylum seekers living in the community. 
Many families and their children, including asylum seekers on bridging visas, have no income after losing their jobs and face homelessness, advocates warn. The article continues to state, quote, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's office would not comment on the push for more assistance for temporary visa holders. He has previously said the government, quote, by Frydenberg, had to draw the line somewhere. The article continues, and Frydenberg continues, quote, if there's no work for them and they can get back to their home country, then that is obviously an option for them, he told the ABC Insiders program. The government has previously said temporary visa holders could dip into their super. We've just heard what happens when that comes to the second dip. As concerns grow among community groups, the article continues, Burnett Institute epidemiologist Professor Michael Toole said there was a clear public health risk associated with not supporting people during a pandemic who are not residents. Strong evidence suggests that when people cannot buy food, medicines or pay their rent, they are more likely to move into overcrowded housing, which is a risk for COVID-19 infection. And I'll finish with one more piece from that article that states, similarly with insecure visas, people are much less likely to go to the hospital even if they are unwell. Professor Toole said, Singapore's experience should be a cautionary tale for Australia. There, the country was showing early and promising signs it was containing the spread of the virus. But having failed to address living conditions for migrant workers, Singapore's cases have leapt. Listeners, every month that passes means that this situation grows more dire for non-residents currently living in Australia who have lost their jobs, who are welcomed here by government to fill job shortages and to study. Rose can't pay the utility bills. Her daughter's Catholic school may or may not lose patience with unpaid fees. Rose's daughter has learnt to feel that she can't ask friends home as there is no food to spare. And Rose herself. Imagine a parent who would do anything to support her child, who has now run out of options, who has now gone silent and is in likely depression. Thanks for listening to Over the Wall. We'll be back next week. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the dynamic market forces the success of privatising aged care dominates the dominant COVID news. The privatised sector, a federal responsibility. Big Supremo scuttled them more or less than, a.k.a. Scummo, resolved the responsibility problem by declaring he was not responsible. Uh, so you're not responsible for what you're responsible for. Quite simply, this is not the time to play partisan politics. This, this is the time for sharing responsibility in the national interest. And in this case, the buck stops in Spring Street, uh, which has no responsibility for privatised aged care. It obviously has. I just told you the buck stops there. Oh, well, that's him off the hook. An inquiry in the gas explosion in May at Anglo-in-the-Dark Americans Grosvenor Coal Mine heard there were 14 HPIs, or high-potential incidents, leading up to the explosion in which several workers were badly burned. Anglo, which boasts an impeccable record of environmental and social destruction all over the world, including suing governments which get a bit upset about it destroying their environment, was convicted over a worker's death in 2016 and has been charged over another death last year, but none of this reflects on its commitment to worker safety.
Gas management has been an issue to achieve our business goals, the company admitted, but safety has always been the priority. Uh, then why not close the mine down altogether, knowing methane was a constant threat? I said safety was a priority, uh, but, but that would have kept the workers safe. Oh, workers? No, 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 I meant the safety of our profits, of our business goals. Having said that, that does not mean that at Anglo in the dark, we don't care about the safety of our workers, especially if they keep charging us all the time just for killing them. Despite threats and much publicized legislation, what are the odds of a boardroom and many when he marched into court and then off to jail for the ongoing murder of and injury to workers? On great resource fossil economics, not often we can proffer advice on the greatest little economic order of them all to the great proponents of the greatest little, but corporate regulator Rod Sims. See, as the government pushes for more and more gas and liquefied natural gas to keep fossilizing the country, urged on by its hand-picked economic reconstruction committee loaded with barons of the fossil industry, FOSS deals, just as the world price collapses, it turns out the great corporates are exporting LNG at lower prices than they're charging us domestically, with domestic prices increasing despite a record low world price. We can't understand, Rod said, why they're doing that. Rod, sit down. Let us explain a few things to you about the greatest little economic order you've obviously missed. In fairness, the problem should be over any day because Fossils Minister Angus Tailings has pleaded with producers to pass on price reductions fairly. That should do the trick. And still on great resource companies and destruction, the There's Nothing Hypocritical Here Award of the Week to Rio Tato the Planet, following its difficult decision between blowing up 46,000 years of indigenous history or getting its claws on, quote, high-grade iron ore, which, when we think about it, was a no-brainer. There's no fortunes in not destroying a bit of history, but the hypocrisy? Well, thus far, the most compensation the Indigenous people have received is a very, very sincere apology, genuine virtual tears in real crocodile country, while calling on government not to overreact by passing regulations preventing it from doing it again, when then again it would deliver another very, very sincere apology. Well, a couple of years ago, a company servicing a Rio Tato the Planet mine in the same area ended up creating a fire causing production delays, for which Rio is seeking not a very, very sincere apology, but suing for half a million in damages, showing how much it hates damaging things, like its bottom line. Rio Tato the Planet, your There's Nothing Hypocritical Here award is on its way, and do try not to damage it. Rio Tato's plea for common sense, don't overreact, has been backed by, well, all the great resource companies submitting to a Western True Blue Aussie inquiry into the Aboriginal Heritage Act in the aftermath of the Ducan Cave's destruction. The government suggesting Indigenous mobs should have some rights of appeal they don't have now. Submissions led by no lesser great True Blue Aussie than Gina Hardhart herself who warned the government not to interfere in existing deals or, sorry, land use agreements. Uh, 
We're very happy, very, very, very happy with the land use agreements we've stitched up, or, or, or rather reached. And poor Gina's big fear, expressed on behalf of all of them, giving Indigenous mobs more rights could lead to, wait for this, sit down, it's outrageous, lead to the misuse of the process to delay important projects. They have no right to stop us doing what is best for the country. We can't be dictated to by self-interest. And oh, how the great resource companies and great troubadours like Gina so eschew self-interest. What a pity those selfish indigenous mobs can't share the selfless patriotism of the great international resource giants. Mentioned some weeks ago, the furor over the appointment of Bo Pahari, real name, to run AMP on the customer's capital, not because the company settled a half million dollar sexual harassment claim against Bo, but as Chairperson John Fraser pointed out so eloquently, he made a lot of money for the company more presumably than the highly qualified woman he beat for the job who then resigned or the harassment victim who also fled the company but this week the details of her ordeal have been made public and I won't go into the gory horrific details but anyway what's it matter he's made a lot of money for the company Oh, and last week, the true blue Aussie head of AMP on the customers resigned suddenly with further sexual harassment allegations floating around. I raise this because also this week, as a response to the proverbial hitting the fan, Bo himself announced he was establishing an inclusion and diversity council just to show up his sincerity. And who would he appoint to head inclusion and diversity? Why, of course, himself. After all, he's the sexual harassment expert. Uh, inclusion and diversity, Bo. Yes, yes, we want a diverse range of sexual harassers. And Bo's a perfect example of inclusion. Like great inclusive leaders. And as Della Reese sang, what a difference a day makes, especially in Bella Russia. Not looking so Bella for big supremo Alexander Luca should go, but more rushing him out the door, because just 24 hours after a massive 80% plus of voters re-elected him, showing how massively popular the old Alexander is, his opponent so unpopular she hardly made double figures, despite the anomaly that polling for the Belarusian diaspora in other countries showed her getting 85% of the vote, casting a huge doubt over that figure. 24 hours after the 80% plus showed how fickle a crowd can be, demanding poor old Alexander piss off. Hard to believe after they'd so overwhelmingly supported their ever-popular leader just a day earlier. They wanted to replace with some opposition politicians, except for the minor problem the entire opposition was in jail, convicted for the heinous crime of attempting to contest the election, along with lots of illegal terrorist protesters locked up for the good of the country and subjected to a little bit of torture for their failure to accept the democratic will of the people. The final candidate standing after her husband was arrested, Svetlana Sikhanuskaya, fleeing across the border just before she too would have been headed for a prison cell and a, a little bit of torture. Incredibly, some observers, like roughly 99% of the world, suggest the election might not have been absolutely 
totally 100% fair. But Alexander put his 80% plus popularity to the test by visiting a factory of loyal workers who farewelled him by chanting, leave now, leave now. And they're his biggest supporters. Can't crowds be fickle? How poor Alexander is suffering for democracy. Sadly, as we record this, and who knows what might happen by the time this goes to air, his response is to increase the oppression and violence against protesters. Although U.S. of the U.S. of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor has rung Alexander seeking a bit of electoral advice. Commercial Telenews the other night announced state public servants are to receive a 2% wage rise just as thousands of Victorians are losing their jobs. And I thought, I wonder which way this is going. To prove their point, the hard-hitting news team, well, using news very loosely, hard-hitting news team dredged up caring business class party and hayseed and sheepshit coalition supremo and would-be big state supremo Michael Nobrain to provide his deep analysis. This is the worst time for a pay rise, which summed up the item perfectly, and we can be sure Michael will inform us all when it is the best time, the right time for a pay rise. Isn't it disastrous timing by the evil unions that every single wage rise ever has always come at the wrong time? Now is not the right time for a pay rise. Therefore, finally, it would help if only caring employers would tell us when it is the right time. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We finish up with a piece from an Australian Institute webinar, a conversation with the United Nations Chiefs economist and Assistant Secretary-General of Economic Development, Elliot Harris. He's in conversation with Richie Merzian from the Australian Institute. The federal government's frightening disregard for a future economy that takes into account a just transition away from fossil fuels is clearly out of step with how the rest of the world sees the impending crisis after the pandemic. And it's all about climate. Elliot, the um, Secretary-General has been quite forward, Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has been quite forward around what um, he recommends should be included and, and in some cases not included in recovery plans. And in his comments to the International Energy Agency, he stated that coal has no place in the COVID-19 recovery plans. Now, for Australia, uh, as the world's largest coal exporter, the government is considering whether to, or, or, or has already previously, what basically the question is, what role could fossil fuel production play um, as part of recovery plans, given the Secretary General's comments? Um, and, and also, previously, you worked for the United Nations Environment Pro Program. They produced a report called the Production Gap Report. That report shows that currently, fossil fuel producers like Australia have plans to produce more fossil fuel that would blow out any carbon budget and blow out any chance of reaching our Paris Agreement goal. Um, and so in trying to address both climate change and COVID-19 recovery, what role should fossil fuel production play and should we be considering more direct measures um, to address this? Uh, Rishi, I'm going, to, I'm going to be as blunt as I possibly can here with this. Um, we know what is driving climate change, it's global warming. We know what's causing the global warming. It is greenhouse gas emissions, primarily uh, carbon dioxide. That comes from fossil fuels above all. 
And of all fossil fuels, coal is the most carbon intensive. It is also the least effective and efficient in delivering energy. And when we say that coal has no future in the recovery from COVID-19, we mean that we want to see a recovery that puts us more clearly and more firmly on the path to sustainability, to a sustainable future. We know that we will not be able to sustain life on this planet if we do not get a grip on climate change and the time is running out. We have to be able to move towards a low carbon structure and everything that we do from now on has to have that in mind. And consequently, when we talk about investing in new coal or expanding coal production, we are definitely saying that we are going to take a risk of not being able to hold the climate crisis, of not being able to stop the, the warming of the climate, and that we then run the risk of irreversible damage. The science is clear. There is no doubt that this is what will happen. And so consequently, although for a fossil fuel producing and exporting country like Austria, like my own country, this is a very tense situation full of trade-offs, the fact of it is that unfortunately, the world does not have the luxury of allowing itself to continue down the path of fossil fuels. And so our view in the United Nations is that we should make every effort to first minimize the carbon footprint that we have. We know we can't flip a switch and turn all the use of carbon off, but we need to prevent ourselves from going down a path that commits us to a higher carbon footprint that is absolutely necessary. And fortunately, we have alternatives that are clean, that are renewable, and that do not have a carbon footprint. And I think it's really important that countries bear in mind that we have to spend our time investing in things that have a future instead of in things that imperil our future. And this, I think, is a key point. And, and it is a very difficult trade-off. There's no doubt about it. But it is something that is going to be inevitable. And we have to act. And the quicker we act, the more gradual our transition can be. Just following on from Richie's question there, uh, a lot of the focus in terms of policy and the debate here in Australia often focuses on um, coal-fired power and uh, not a lot focuses on the supply um, side policies in terms of our fossil fuel exports. And we've seen in recent years, um, particularly Pacific Island nations, uh, push forward the idea of a moratorium on uh, new coal mines or indeed ideas like fossil fuel free zones. Is there a role for those types of supply side policies? Absolutely. I think we have to um, deploy all of the possible instruments to set the right sorts of incentives to make it feasible and remunerative to invest in clean and renewable energy and less feasible and perhaps downright punitive to invest in, in the fossil fuels. I do believe that um, we know, I, I can't tell you, Ebony, at what point in time the last government on earth is going to ban the last uh, coal-fired power plant. But I can tell you that that will happen, and it will happen in my lifestyle, probably even before I retire. This means that we know that this is a technology whose time has come. It is finished. And so the question of new coal-fired power plants really has to be seen in the, in the context of time. We can certainly invest money now in something that might generate a return for the next few years, but it certainly won't generate a return over the full potential lifespan of that investment. Is that the best use of our financial resources? My answer to that is clearly no. We could invest it in less damaging forms of fossil fuel if we have to stick with fossil fuels, but preferably we should be shifting all of those investments towards things that are sustainable that we can continue to do 
in over time without endangering the very basis of our lives here on this planet. And this is a critical choice that all countries have to make and all investors have to make. We know that these assets will be stranded. There is no doubt in anybody's mind. Do we still want to invest in them? What is the economic rationale of that? What is the social rationale of that? And there is no environmental rationale for that. And so consequently, I think these are the things that we have to weigh when we make these kinds of decisions. It's a timely question that you raise, Elliot, because um, just yesterday, the Senate in a, um, here in Canberra was hearing from some of the government advisors about the need to underwrite or subsidize gas infrastructure to expand Australia's gas production. And Australia has recently become you know, the highest, uh, the largest LNG exporter. Now, most people um, who are familiar with Trinidad and Tobago might be more familiar with Brian Lara and, and Batsman. But really, the economy there is, is also heavily um, involved in gas production and export as well. Do you think it's a good idea for Australia to be underwriting, for taxpayers to be underwriting uh, gas infrastructure and expansion of, of fossil fuel production, specifically at a time like this, um, when there's also a glut in the gas market as well? Well, I would ask myself, uh, what sorts of incentives should policy set? Now, if we need to subsidize any sector, any form of economic activity, in order to incentivize the, the investment, then we need to ask ourselves, well, should we not in, in incentivize investments that are going to serve us well for as long as possible? And that then comes back down to the question of, do we want to continue to invest in fossil fuels when we know that they don't have an unlimited future, when we know that every additional bit of carbon that we pump into the atmosphere is limiting our own future and our own capacity to prevent irreversible climate damage? I think the answer to that is pretty clear. Now, for countries like mine, like yours, this is a tremendous trade-off. But if we should go down the road of subsidizing them, one has to ask, well, why is the subsidy even necessary? Why is the private sector not willing to invest without the subsidy from the public purse? And the reason for that is the private sector can think ahead. And they understand perfectly well that this is time-bound technology. It is limited. And anyone who wants to be making profit 30 years from now has to take into account what the climate is going to look like, or has to take into account what the overall environment is going to look like. And these are things that do not offer good perspectives from the point of view of fossil fuels. And so consequently, I think we really have to think about how do we shift the flow of investment towards sustainability? How do we spend our money in the most sustainable way that has the longest and most favorable future for our and for our children and those questions have to be answered so on, on the question of money then um is the issue in terms of you know because one of the goals of the paris agreement is to align finance with climate change um so is the issue in terms of financing a sustainable future is it an issue of a lack of capital or a lack of political will oh quite clearly the lack of political will um my assessment is that although governments are indeed in principle committed to the uh, sustainable development goals, they have not yet taken the plunge, taken the step of changing policies to make the policies consistent with those sustainable development goals. And if you speak about subsidizing fossil fuels, clearly that is not consistent with SDG 13, which is on climate change. Now, what we've seen in this COVID crisis is that governments are indeed capable of really ambitious, rather unorthodox, and extremely important, even massive interventions when the stakes are high enough. Well, 
I can think of no stakes that are higher than the climate crisis that we're living in right now. And so here's the question. If we are going to make interventions, if we are going to make policy decisions, if we're going to spend public money, what should we be spending it on? And I think that that has to be one of the guiding questions for the recovery. Let's not go back to what we had before because it wasn't enough. It wasn't generating the sustainable future that we all need. It was leaving large amounts of people, large numbers of countries behind. Let's go forward into something that is better and we can correct the mistakes that we've been making in the past. And we have seen through the COVID crisis that when governments want to, they can act. And they enjoy the support of people because the people understand why they're doing it. And that's part of the part of the equation. There are going to be losers in any transition. There are always losers. Let us embrace that. Let us say, we understand that some of you are going to lose your jobs. Some sectors are going to go into decline. Let us see what we can do to make those transitions as acceptable, as manageable as possible. The just transition is the phrase we use for that. But let us not try to pretend that we can go back to what we had before and expect to have a better result. Uh, I call upon Mr. Einstein's definition of insanity. It won't work unless we change our policies. And we have to change our policies because it has to work. We do not have a choice. And so speaking of changing policies, the European Union's put forward a European Green Deal, um, which in a sense is trying to address both recovery as well as climate, as well as financing, um, as well as transition. Um, to address, as you said, those who are you know, less likely to benefit and those who are more likely. But the most interesting thing, I guess, for Australia, which is negotiating a free trade deal right now with the European Union, um, is this issue of, of border tariffs and the potential for the European Union to put border tariffs on Australian goods um, that are um, high in carbon intensity in order to you know, even things out, given that their own economy is now prioritizing um, greener or, or less carbon intensive goods. Um, are those type of policies um, useful to help shift things along? And are we likely to see more, especially you know, if, if say the, the US changes tact in terms of its approach to climate as well? I think the fact that that is a part of the European Green Deal is indicative. Because if you think about it, um, the idea here is that we want to reduce the carbon footprint of our consumption and production patterns. Now, it does not help if in one country we've reduced the carbon footprint of our production and the consumption of those products, but we are also consuming products that are produced with a much higher carbon footprint because that goes against the basic principle of reducing the footprint, the carbon content of our consumption and production. That's SDG 12, by the way, sustainable consumption and production. It's only consistent, you see? Now, whether or not that's the most effective way of handling it, I would say punitive taxes are always something that you want to leave as a last resort. It's always much better to discuss, to sit around a, a negotiating table, explain what the constraints are, explain what the objective is, explain how the difficult transition will yield eventually to a much better and much more sustainable future. That is profitable because I will say that renewable energy is profitable now. And to come to a mutual agreement on this, rather than to have any one set of players uh, imposing sanctions or, or, or barriers or some other kinds of hindrances to the free flow of goods and services. But again, one of the realities of our, of our lives is that um, it's not always possible to move in lockstep across all countries 
on some of these controversial matters. And sometimes some countries are able to move ahead a little bit more rapidly than others can. But I think the fundamental question is, can a country consistently say, we commit ourselves to reducing our carbon footprint and we commit ourselves to doing what has to be done to reverse climate change and still at the same time allow loopholes that keep the carbon footprint higher than it should be? And so that is a, a real question. And to the extent that we cannot see movement in the right direction that's appreciable, I think we are likely to see that those countries that are moving ahead are likely to look for other ways in which they can advance the agenda as well. Now, hopefully, as I say, we can all come to agreement and, and move forward in, in joint harmony, because harmony is always better than conflict. But um, yeah, the fact that it's a part of that program, a part of that initiative, is indicative. So on the question of moving forward together, which, which is the ideal situation, it comes down to the, the question of cooperation at the multilateral level. Um, Elliot, when, when we met last year, it was on the margins of, of the UN um, Climate Action Summit that the Secretary General put on uh, in New York. And it shows the power of, of the United Nations to convene the world, to facilitate these, these actions. Um, even you know, President Trump attended the Climate Summit after threatening not to. Unfortunately, the, the Australian Prime Minister did not, um, despite being in the United States. And so it's probably a, a two-part question. The first is, um, what is the role of multilateralism and does it need reinvigoration, um, both on climate, on health, um, on trade? Um, in all three, we've seen you know, uh, a, a fair few critics rise up and, and disparage multilateralism despite the real value. And then the second part is really like, and what is Australia's role in all that? Does Australia have a reputation as an as a honest broker, as a good faith player, or has um, the current administration's actions started to sour that? Well, um, I do think that the multilateralism is, uh, has been weakened over the last five years. Uh, don't forget, this whole system, the Paris Agreement, the Addis Ababa Agenda for um, Financing for Sustainable Development, and of course, the Sustainable Development Goals themselves, those were, if you will, the, the absolute summit of multilateralism. And mm. I think that that was born out of a sense that joined up coordinated action is what enabled us to get out of that last crisis, the global financial crisis, without more damage. The G20 came together and acted together and really did prevent things from just slipping out of control. Now, we've lost sight of that. And I think part of it is because, on the one hand, we have had some downsides to this process of globalization, to the integration of the global economy. And I think there have been losers, groups of people, for example, manufacturing workers in some of the industrialized countries, who've lost out to the offshoring of manufacturing production to other countries, to these long global supply chains that have arisen as a part of the globalization trade. We have not dealt with that. Our governments have not had open and honest conversations with their citizens to explain what is going on and what we can do to help people, to help groups manage this transition in a reasonably just and equitable way. But we should not lose sight of the fact that those multilateral processes have been very powerful. If you look at the history of trade over the last 40 years, I mentioned at the very outset that the inter country inequality has been declining and a large, to a large part because due to trade, some countries have been able to catch up. You know? uh, and you need only look in, in, in Australia's hemisphere, look at the experience of Australia 
of New Zealand, of Japan, China, Korea, Taiwan. The list goes on and on, countries that have benefited from trade. But again, the question is, trade is not only positive, there is the downside as well that also has to be managed explicitly. On the other hand, where we don't have multilateralism working well, we have things like conflicts that we can't seem to solve. Look at Syria. We've not been able to come to an agreement on how to deal with it. And the human pain and suffering that that crisis has caused, is, it's, it's indescribable. And so that is part of the issue. Many of the topics that we have to deal with as individual countries, they only have a multilateral solution, climate change, biodiversity, the regulation of artificial intelligence. We are going to have to come up with a jointly, how do we say, a jointly conceived framework within which national regulation for artificial intelligence can take place. We have to fight discrimination. We have to manage migration properly. We have to resolve conflicts. We have to try to protect our oceans. Look at what is happening to the Australian Great Barrier Reef. You know, that Australia alone cannot solve. It needs international cooperation. We have to find ways of taxing the digital economy, which is growing by leaps and bounds, and yet is escaping much of the taxation of national fiscal authorities. All of these are areas where we have to come together. It does not impinge upon a nation's sovereignty to cooperate with its neighbors. And we really have to make an effort there because we would simply not do as well if we try to do it alone. Of, of impacts, these sorts of shocks, these disasters, so that they have less of a debilitating influence on our peoples when they do occur. This, I think, is something that is not a question of swinging between neoliberalism and welfareism and these other jargons and the, the heavily weighted connotations that, that that kind of phraseology brings along. It's a question of pure common sense. Do we want to be vulnerable to the shocks in the future? Or do we want to be less vulnerable to shocks in the future? I think all of us will come out saying less vulnerable is better. Let's see what we can do to get there. We, we know that there are going to be shocks, there are going to be economic, environmental shocks, there may be social shocks. We want our countries, our peoples in particular, to be able to absorb these shocks, to not be thrown off into poverty, to not have destitution be the alternative to their lives today. The resilience can be built up through a range of different measures. We've talked earlier in the program about social protection. I think that's a critical element of it. I do think uh, a clear sense of what we're trying to achieve in the recovery is not just getting back to growth as we used to have it before, but we want a different kind of growth. We want a growth that does not generate the kind of inequality that we've seen over the past 30 years. We want a growth that is more sustainable, that does not have this resource intensity that we know is a huge problem. We want growth that is low carbon. Those are all elements of resilience. That's not welfareism. That is social progress, economic progress, environmental progress. It is the sustainable development that we have all agreed we want. Now, I think you're quite right that there will always be crises, and some of these crises are going to be happening with greater frequency and intensity, especially the weather-related ones, because of the climate change. And it's in everybody's interest that we are resilient, that we become more resilient to that also, it's in everybody's interest that we prepare for these kinds of, of, of impacts, these sorts of shocks, these disasters, so that they have less of a debilitating influence on our peoples when they do occur. This, I think, is something that is not a question of swinging between neoliberalism and welfareism and these other jargons and the, the heavily weighted connotations that, that that kind of phraseology brings along. It's a question of pure common sense. Do we want to be vulnerable to the shocks in the future? Or do we want to be less vulnerable to shocks in the future? I think all of us will come out saying less vulnerable is better. Let's see what we can do to get there. 
you. Thank you. And uh, it's nearly time to wrap up. So I might just ask this final question. In a, in a couple of minutes, would you be able to, is there anything positive that you think will come out of this uh, pandemic and the way that we've rearranged ourselves and are looking for a path forward that you'd like to leave us with? I think the thing that I would like to see happen as a result of this pandemic is the recognition by governments that people actually will support the right measures going forward. I think that we've seen that they've been able to do things that under normal circumstances might have been problematic, but they've done it under extreme circumstances and they've had the support of their populations and their electorates. I think they will find that if they can couch their policies in understandable terms and talk to their citizens and say, here is why we want to do it, they will find the support and that will allow them to do a whole lot more than they think they can. And I hope that this pandemic proves that to all of our governments that we don't have to hesitate about doing sustainable development. We should do it. And we will have the support because that sustainable development is in the interest of each and every one of us on this planet. And people will realise it. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. I hope you are coping with the lockdown here in Victoria. Keep safe. Keep safe and tune in for more politics with your Wheaties next week. Bye for now. What a difference a day made. 24 little The sun and the flowers Where they used to be rain My yesterday was blue tears Today I'm a part of My lonely nights are through tears Since you said you were mine Lord, what a difference a day makes There's a rainbow before above can't be stormy since that moment of bliss that thrilling kiss it's heaven when you find romance on your What a difference a day made And the difference is you
what a difference a day makes. There's a rainbow before me. Skies above can't be stormy. Since that moment of bliss, that thrilling kiss, it's heaven when you find romance on your menu. What a difference a day makes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.